The bullet tore into Salvatore Amato's right arm in the meat of his bicep. The gun was a small 22 caliber. This is the final scene of an unpublished murder mystery called Some Like It Big. It's being read by an actor, but the author is Ike Hirschkoff. Boom! The second bullet tore into the older man's groin. Chris Amato had apparently been aiming for his genitalia. He was now bleeding profusely. He finally seemed to realize that his son fully intended to kill him. Boom. The novel's hero is a brilliant but misunderstood psychiatrist, Dr. Jamie Brandeis. Why did you kill him, Chris? I didn't kill him, Jamie. You did. The police are going to find this gun in your hand. Like many writers, Ike borrows from his own life in his fiction. Like Ike, Jamie grew up in New York and was valedictorian of his med school class. And he's got a thriving practice on Manhattan's east side. But Jamie uses his powers of psychiatry to solve crimes. What made you finally realize it was me? The first rule of psychiatry is that everything has a reason. There had to be a reason that the door was deliberately left open after the murder. The only reason could be that the murderer wanted the body discovered sooner rather than later, unlike the norm. Why would the murderer want that? So that he wouldn't have to discover the body himself. Jamie has twin daughters, just like Ike. And the books also include some familiar names. Jamie's wife is called Becky. In this saga, the murderer tries to console Jamie while holding him at gunpoint by promising to take care of Jamie's family after he shoots him. My father's estate is worth about $10 million. My immediate share of that is half. I'll give Becky $1 million as soon as the estate is settled. I'll set up a separate million-dollar trust fund, each for Deborah and Judy. They'll never want for anything. There's a Marty character, too, although he doesn't have much in common with Marty Markowitz. Martin Packer is a Puerto Rican cop who's both Jamie's best friend and sidekick. Marty also carries a gun, which often comes in handy. Drop the gun, Chris. Don't make me kill you. Chris's face turned ashen at the sound of Marty's deep voice. Chris appeared paralyzed with his gun still pointing at Jamie. Chris, it's over. Please drop the gun. If you try anything, he really will kill you. Chris slowly cocked his trigger as he carefully aimed at Jamie's forehead. Boom. Marty's bullet finds the bad guy just in time. Jamie solves the case and lives to see another day. I don't have the books in here that I have them back there. Originally. Handwritten books. He had an amazing ability to write think through things and know what he's writing. Ike wrote his books in longhand, and Marty, the real Marty, typed them up. Thousands upon thousands of pages. He would say that the books, especially the murder mysteries, would sort of write themselves. This is what he would tell me. Marty gently touched his friend's neck. You okay? Only thanks to you. Imagine a world where you can get shiny, healthy-looking hair color without spending hours in the salon. That is what you'll get when you color your hair with Madison Reed. 
Madison Reed makes coloring your hair at home super easy. That's because they give you all the tools you need to succeed, starting with the color quiz, their try-on tool, and color specialists ready to take your call or chat with you so you can make sure you're getting exactly what you need. Unlike many other hair color brands, Madison Reed Color doesn't contain harsh ingredients like ammonia, PPD, or titanium dioxide. Instead, it's full of ingredients that nourish your hair, like keratin and ginseng root extract, so you get shiny, healthy-looking color. So, if you're ready to look like you went to the salon at a fraction of the price, starting at just $22, head right now to madison-reed.com. Use our promo code THESHRINK, and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. That's promo code THESHRINK, all one word. This episode is supported by Home Chef. Home Chef offers delicious, exciting meals anyone can cook, delivered right to your door. New recipes rotate weekly, so there's a wide variety of options. They offer classic meal kits, 15-minute meals, and oven-ready or microwave recipes that save time and effort in the kitchen. For $90 off your first month, use promo code WONDERY at homechef.com. That's the equivalent of 10 free meals. Go to homechef.com for $90 off with code WONDERY. From Wondery and Bloomberg, I'm Jono Serra, and this is The Shrink Next Door. I'm gonna spell This is episode five, The Last Straw. Ike used to spend a lot of his free time writing. More than anything, he seemed determined to become a published author. Ike fancied himself a writer, even though he had very difficulty getting any of the 12 books that he wrote published. Seven of those books were part of a murder mystery series. Some like it big, some like it modest, some like it rich. You get the idea. Marty showed me some of the old manuscripts he still has in his office. Some like it rich. There it is from start to finish. And it's a spiral notebook. It's a spiral notebook. Where he's written, he's printed, basically prints. He prints, that's right. In pencil. Ike also wrote nonfiction, self-help books about marriage and parenting, along with a book about the challenges facing celebrities. He even self-published one of his manuscripts. Hello, darkness, my old friend, embracing anger to heal your life. And he wrote a memoir on the heels of his father's death in 1996. It talks about his complicated relationship with his father and how he endured a difficult childhood growing up with parents who were both Holocaust survivors. The most important event of my life occurred before I was born. I was 10 years old before I realized that my parents had survived the Holocaust. I had sooner perceived that they had engaged in sexual intercourse to conceive me. It's not like there was a dearth of clues. They both had concentration camp numbers prominently branded on their forearms. They were both obvious immigrants, speaking and writing English with difficulty. I didn't have any grandparents. I only had one aunt and uncle. At my wedding, my extended family numbered seven. My wife's equivalent numbered 140. And those were just the books. Ike also wrote occasional columns for the New York Jewish Week and countless letters to the editor. He had an extremely high hit rate on the letters he wrote to the editor. I would say over 70, 75% of the letters he wrote to the editor were published. Between the letters, the books, and various lectures, Ike churned out a lot of handwritten pages. And as a result, 
Much of Marty's free time became consumed with typing those handwritten pages. I was the only one who did, did secretarial work for him. His wife didn't do it. His kids didn't do it for him. I was the one he used. Do you remember how you started doing that? Like, did you offer to do that? I don't have a specific recollection. I got to believe he, it, we just sort of flowed into that. Because we started, I started typing his letters to the editor and certain other introductory speeches that he would give at various uh, ceremonial events that he was the MC. I never objected to him. In the early years of the relationship, Marty felt honored that Ike trusted him with this work. This was another way that Marty's days were taken up filling Ike's needs. Add typing to the long list of chores alongside photographing Ike at parties, maintaining the Hamptons' property, organizing summer functions, and all the rest of it. One of the ways Ike exerted control over my life was to basically create the structure of everything that was happening in my life. And an important aspect of that was keeping me very, very busy, especially on the weekends, where I might have had time to think through things, where I might have had time to flounder a little bit. Of all of Marty's tasks, typing the books became the most time-consuming. All of which I typed and retyped and retyped and retyped for him as he made continual revision. Ike loved being in the company of writers. He often name-dropped the more high-profile ones. And there was one place that had more writers than anywhere else, the Penn Foundation Gala. It's the closest the literary world gets to Oscars night, an elaborate dinner with every literary star in attendance. Ike would reserve an entire table every year, paid for by the Euron Foundation, the charity he'd set up with Marty. The Penn Gala was a chance for Ike to make connections in the publishing world. Marty still has dozens of old letters that Ike would write after the event. Letters where Ike would reach out to the people he'd met and ask them to take a look at his manuscripts, like this letter to a book editor. Dear Mr. Isaacson, I enclose a summary of my books as well as a biography per your suggestion. To refresh your memory, I had dinner with Louis Frumkus, who recommended, nay, insisted that I contact you. For reasons better explained in person, these books have not been previously offered for publication, although one of them, coupled, was sold for a movie option since expired years ago. They have been read and generously lauded by such diverse friends as Ira Burkow, Ari Goldman, Yitz It was Green. very time-consuming, and he d- was very demanding, and he wa- I used to work sometimes, I'd go out to Southampton and spend the entire weekend just typing away. Though not really a friend, Norman Mailer complimented the anger book as, quote, his biography. And I'd come back and give him the revision of whatever the chapters were, and then he would work on it again and give me more revisions to do, and et cetera, et cetera. But to Ike's frustration, no one in publishing seemed interested. As the years passed and Ike continued to struggle with his literary aspirations, Marty began to resent how much of his life was being consumed retyping books that he suspected would never see the light of day. I was very mixed feelings about the whole thing. On the one hand, I was helping someone that I greatly admired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, boy, oh boy, I'm, this guy's consuming all my time and I'm paying him 
<laughs> and I'm paying him all this money. Right. And that bothered me. It didn't help that Ike increasingly seemed to take Marty for granted. I would go up to his office. He'd sit there and say, don't speak, just sit there. And he'd write out some private correspondence and then give it to me and say, when we get downtown, type it up. Downtown was shorthand for Marty's office. And Ike would sometimes give Marty something else to type. Letters related to the diagnosis and treatment of his patients. Only in a few cases did I type up diagnoses and other correspondence with patients. It was not a regular event. Okay, but he would file them here. But he would file a lot of the material here. Of course, anything I typed, I have on my computer. It's hard to know who Ike was sending these letters to. The copies on Marty's hard drive don't have addresses. But what is clear is that these are patient files that Marty should not have had access to, like this one. Of all the things that we found in your office over the years, Marty, this is the one that shocks me the most. It's a fax. Six handwritten pages, hastily scribbled. This is a 2003, November 12, 2003 fax to Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff from Courtney Love. Courtney Love was a longtime patient of Ike's. And the facts was full of highly personal details, the kind you would only share with your therapist. Ike did not have a fax in his office, and so he suggested that she use my office fax, which she did. We asked Ike about this document for this story. He didn't respond. But back in 2012, he suggested that Marty had stolen the fax. When you received that fax, had he told you, hey, I'm going to have a patient... I just remember he said to me, I've instructed my patient, uh, Courtney Love, is going to be sending you a, uh, a fax, and that uh, it's important that you get it to me. Now, maybe I shouldn't have read it. I did. I wound up with a letter that if I had ever turned it over to uh, the National Enquirer, I could have gotten, I could have retired early. Marty says he never really considered selling the letter to the National Enquirer. I would consider that a betrayal. Right. And I, and, uh, and, uh, I valued our relationship and the confidential nature of our relationship, which is why I spilled my guts out uh, to him about every aspect of my life. You know, the fun, it's funny you talk about confidentiality because given the fact that you were writing, you were typing letters about other patients, what made you think that your stuff would be held in confidence? You know, that's, Joe, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, we were just like buddy buddies all the time. But sometimes, even your buddy buddies will disappoint you. Marty thought Ike was his best friend, that they were a dynamic duo, just like Martin Packer and Jamie Brandeis. And maybe they were for a while. But all that was about to change. Hey, listeners, we're excited to tell you a little about a brand new show, Memory Lane, from Realm, which is best described as part podcast studio, part magical refuge. Memory Lane is a psychological thriller about the dangers of memory from the creator behind the hit series Pretty Little Liars. After a memory implantation procedure reveals a secret that was never meant to be discovered, an estranged mother and daughter must trust each other like they never have before if they stand any chance at survival. 
This series is perfect for fans of Inception and Blood Ties. It'll keep you on the edge of your seat right to the end. Memory Lane has new episodes dropping every week. Learn more at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. By the mid-2000s, Marty's life had been intertwined with Ike's for almost a quarter century. His universe had gotten even smaller if that was possible. Marty didn't see Ike's daughters once they became teenagers. He rarely saw Becky either, except on the days of the summer parties. His world was now Ike and Ike alone. Marty accepted this, but he was finding it harder and harder to accept the price tag. There was one month I paid him something like in the order of $14,000 or something for the month. And that's, that's outrageous sum of money. I've looked at the records Marty kept. His tally for 1994, for instance, was more than $149,000. And he was starting to feel like he was getting nothing in return. Or worse, paying for the privilege of doing things for Ike. But what about when you were typing his correspondence? Was he charging you for that? You betcha. You betcha. Ike told me, I never took a penny more than my hourly fee. In fact, in the last decade, in what M.M. referred to as the bargain of the century, I charged significantly less. But Marty was starting to feel used. It always bothered me that I was, sometimes we would stay an extra 45 minutes or an hour while he did some private work, either writing a condolence letter or doing this or that or whatever. And then I was getting billed at it for hundreds of dollars because we stayed over it. Marty has a degree in accounting, so he's always running a tally in his head. And the fees for Ike weren't the only thing that worried him. Associated Fabrics was in decline. It was a long-term, slow bleed. If you look at the yearly numbers, they don't go down dramatically. Sam Sampson, Ike's childhood friend, had become AFC's director of operations. He could see it just like everyone else. Ike had instituted some policies about pricing that I think a lot of our customers did not like. But again, the whole industry, I think, was tanking. But by far, the biggest drain on the company was the Manhattan rent. You didn't have to be a genius to figure it out. You didn't have to be any great, great business mind. It was simple. Bruce Nocera watched the company's struggles with increasing alarm. You can't afford X amount of dollars a year if you're only bringing in Y amount of dollars a year. The warehouse was on 25th Street, right in the middle of Manhattan. And the rent was Manhattan high, $25,000 a month. It hadn't been a problem during the boom years, but now... I said, Ike, we can't afford this. This is just going to suck way too much money out of the company, over a quarter million dollars a year. And he said, okay, go find another space. So at that time, we found a wonderful space on the west side. Sam, myself, and Marty all went together one afternoon after work. We walked through it, and it was it was really a good deal. Less square footage, half of what they were going to charge us on East 25th Street. The one person who didn't like the space was Ike, Mr. Isaac Stevens. So Marty and I sat down, we talked it out and this and that, and I said, why don't you, you know, speak to Mr. Stevens and discuss it with him, explain to him. Read him the riot act. Tell him what the hell's going on with the money in this company. We're going to go back. We're going to go bust. We, it's going to break the company. 
But when Marty came back to Bruce, he had bad news. I said, well, how'd you make out? He said, I didn't. I said, what do you mean you didn't? He said, we spoke to him. He says, no, that's no good for us. And he went through this litany. Bruce knew the situation was desperate. So he decided to go talk to Ike himself. I said, it's a bad situation, I said, and we can save a lot of money. Ike listened to Bruce. And then Ike explained the real problem with the new space. It was the neighborhood. Bruce says Ike listed off all the problems with the neighborhood. A regular clientele of drug addicts. People shooting up and smoking and doing all kinds of things. You had just malcontents in general on the block. Ike confirmed to me that he had concerns about safety. Concerns, Ike says, that Marty shared. But Bruce only remembers Ike's concerns. So I called him on it. I said, that's not true. And I told him, I said, look, I said, you're going to bankrupt the company. I said, you're going to run the company out of business. At which point he told me, we're not moving. And he said that very definitively, we're not moving. I don't want to hear it anymore. And if you keep bringing it up, it's going to cost you your job. Bruce got the message. Ike didn't respond to any of our specific questions about this conversation, but he did broadly dismiss Bruce's recollection. No, I will say this. At that point, he believed he was in charge, and he was. He was in charge until the money ran out. My feeling was maybe the business will get better, you know, maybe things will improve. But they didn't. They got worse and worse and worse until I felt like I was being choked. By 2007, AFC was down to just four full-time employees who were keeping the ship afloat. Finally, something snapped. I had to take charge of my life. That's why when I presented to Ike that we can't afford to stay in Manhattan anymore, I didn't present it as a a question. I presented it as a statement. We cannot afford to stay any longer, not even a month longer. In four or five months, we're bankrupt. Marty took charge. He started seeing realtors and visiting warehouses. And eventually, he found the right place without Ike. Not in Manhattan, but in New Jersey. I knew right away, in my bones, I felt that this was the right thing to do. I hired the construction company. I did all of that stuff. So I'm starting to get my mojo back. It was an old warehouse in Fairlawn, New Jersey, that had been owned by Leon Perrins, the Worcestershire sauce company. There was plenty of space. And best of all, Marty bought it outright. He wouldn't have to pay rent anymore. But Marty says that when Ike made the trip to New Jersey he immediately found things to criticize. One thing in particular. The thing that really got under his craw was the fact that I was going to put up a a television set, a a flat-screen TV in my office. Ike denies this, but the other employees remember him fixating on that flat-screen TV. Every time Ike walked in the door, the first thing he'd say is the TV is still up. And Marty would say to him, I didn't take it down yet. I didn't get to it. He even told me, my daughters, the twins, right, are laughing at you for that. Seriously, he told me that the twins were laughing, that they thought it was such a stupid idea. Ike says he was never angry about the TV. He just felt that displaying a luxury item in front of employees wasn't a good look. He actually made me swear, promise, that I would take the TV down. I had no intention of taking the TV down, but all it was doing was getting under my craw and getting me pissed off. The TV stayed. And in a way, Ike started to recede as a a force in my life. At first, 
Ike would venture out to New Jersey once a week. And those trips were very expensive because I had to have a limousine pick him up at his office at whatever time, 12 o'clock. The clock starts ticking. My session clock starts ticking and coming out here. And he stayed here for no more than max one hour to do what? To ask Bruce, is everything okay? Yeah, Mr. S, everything is okay. To ask Sam, is everything okay? Yeah, everything is okay. And then we would drive home. Ike says the limousine was just a car with a driver and that he only took it to New Jersey because he always caught a ride back. Sometimes, when Ike couldn't make it to Jersey, he and Marty would have a phone session. They were so annoying because every session... Did you take the TV down yet? Even though Marty felt more and more annoyed, Bruce and Sam saw a positive change in their boss. They both believed it stemmed from the new office and the diminished presence of Ike. Marty became a different guy because he he had to take responsibility for, for decisions. In the past, it was always Ike who made the decisions for everything. It was wonderful. It was a breath of fresh air. We would talk openly. If I said something to him, he paid attention. He paid attention to the business again. In some ways, that was a pain in my ass because I had gotten used to working without him totally. But you could see he he became more like the Marty I knew prior. Ike's business advice, which Marty had once valued, now seemed worthless to him. It was like a marriage where the couple knows that the relationship has gone cold, but they can't yet bring themselves to end it. That's exactly what it was. I mean, I was basically married to this guy. He was my life. My whole, you know, three times a week, I would, you know, sit basically uh, uh, at his knee and and ask him for directions and what what to do and what what to do with my, you know, uh, he was my life. He was my world. You're absolutely right. It was like uh, breaking up a marriage. Ike's relationship with Marty was on thin ice. And it was only a matter of time before the ice finally broke. To create the best Tucson ever, Hyundai questioned everything. The design, the technology, the features. How could Hyundai rethink the SUV? In the end, every inch of the new Tucson was completely reimagined, resulting in an SUV loaded with available innovations both inside and out, like daytime running lights stylishly integrated into the grille, a large 10-and-a-quarter-inch touchscreen, and even a digital key app that allows you to use your phone to unlock and start the vehicle. Design, technology, safety, all redesigned inside and out to create the best Tucson ever. Learn more at Hyundai.com. As much as I enjoy cooking, it's pretty much always the first thing that gets bumped from my ever-growing to-do list. That's why when I have a really busy week, I've started turning to Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious, clean food right to your door, no prep required. They've got smoothies for breakfast and lunch and dinner options like flatbreads, harvest bowls, and soups. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to enjoy, and it takes just minutes to prepare. 
I knew Daily Harvest for their smoothies, and the mint cacao smoothie did not disappoint. It felt refreshing, healthy, but most of all, tasted amazing. I loved having a treat, but knowing it was packed with spinach, healthy fats from cashews, and antioxidant-rich cacao nibs. Get started today. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code WONDERY to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code WONDERY for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. dailyharvest.com. The last straw was a small thing. In September of 2010, Marty had a hernia operation. It was an outpatient procedure, nothing major. Ike referred Marty to a surgeon and helped him plan his time away from the office. Marty listed Ike as his emergency contact. I drove there by myself. I went through the procedure. I when, you know, recovered uh, after the surgery, and then I had a car service drive me back to my apartment. Marty spent the next few days in bed, recovering. I had purchased food and stocked my apartment so it would be ready for me. Marty's surgery was on a Thursday. Ike didn't call on Friday. And as the day went on and the Sabbath began, Marty realized he wasn't going to hear from Ike until Sunday. It's a very painful recovery for at least the first day or two. And uh, I remember uh, being a, a bit in anguish and agony, and I'm waiting for a phone call to say, how are you doing, from Ike. Sunday turned to Monday. Marty moved from the bed to his couch. Still, nothing from Ike. When did you realize he wasn't going to call? Well, until it didn't happen. Nineteen years earlier, Marty had had bypass surgery at the NYU Medical Center. By coincidence, Becky was giving birth to Ike's youngest daughter at the same time. She was born also at the NYU Medical Center. Ike went to see his new daughter and visit his wife and then came to pay a visit to me. Alone in his apartment, he started to mull over that previous hospital visit. Marty began to wonder... If Ike hadn't been visiting his family in the same hospital, would he have bothered to visit Marty at all? We'll never know the answer to that. But I do know that he never contacted me to ask me how I'm doing. That was like sticking a knife into my stomach and twisting it. He's the only person. I, uh, I, uh, I've been with him for t- almost 27 years at that time, and he doesn't make even a phone call to ask me how I'm doing. For the first time... Marty wasn't just annoyed or irritated or secretly resentful. He was hurt. I knew that he knew that he was the only person in my life. In a way, it's like expressing anger by not making that call. It's a way of his saying, you know, screw you. Is that how you felt? Uh, yeah. Why, yeah, no, right. He, I was t- totally expecting him to call, and I'm sure... He knew that I was totally expecting him to call. Because there was nobody else. And therefore, for him not to make that phone call, the way I see it, is an expression of anger. For years, Marty had suffered in silence. But at this moment, as Marty sat and stewed, his feelings really shifted. 
all of these frustrations, all of these issues, all of the anger sort of came bursting out of me. And I realized he doesn't give a rat's ass about me. He doesn't care about me, period. I decided to break off with him. So I wrote that letter. Marty composed a very careful, very polite letter. Ike had taught me along the way you want to be very careful about burning bridges. You don't burn bridges if you don't have to. Also, when you write a letter, you have total control of the four corners of the letter. You can control the conversation. Because I knew I could never do this in a conversation with him that he would basically twist my words and convince me that everything I'm doing was wrong. And I knew what I was doing was right. Marty decided to frame his decision as a matter of business and nothing personal. Dear Ike, happy to report all is well. There is only one problem that I'm trying to get my hands around, and that is the amount of time I feel I can afford to spend with you. For years, Marty had paid Ike out of his company's account. He wrote that the expense wasn't something he could keep up any longer. Marty continued... As much as I love spending time with you, I feel that we need to adjust our time together in a serious way. And it seems to be that now is the right time to do this as I am in a good place in my life. Here is what I am proposing. I'd like to take a few months off and reevaluate the situation in January. My current thinking is that an hour and a half per month in your office or over lunch will be sufficient for a minimal level of care. Of course, when a crisis occurs, as I'm sure it will, I would then request additional time and hopefully you will be able to accommodate me. However, I understand that you may not be able to see me and that will be a price that I will have to pay. Please know that this has been a very difficult letter for me to write. I respect and love both you and your family. I am deeply appreciative for what you and I have accomplished together over the years. We both know where I would be without your guidance and assistance. The truth is that I carry you with me wherever I go, and I literally hear your voice guiding me. I'm hoping that I have your understanding and that what I am doing works out. I know that only time will tell. Marty dropped the letter in the mail and waited. Ike's handwritten response arrived in Marty's mailbox a few days later. He didn't like this letter. This was his style, basically, to write in hand a a letter to me uh, telling me why I'm making the biggest mistake of my life. The only positive aspect of my not seeing you has been a timely increase in our income since I'm no longer deeply discounting my fees. The most negative aspect is how much I miss you. As you understand better than anyone, The reason the demand for my time exceeds the supply is that I am direct with my analysis instead of polite. I owe you no less at this critical time. Marty, I fear that your current approach is a recipe for disaster. He argued that my employees were passive-aggressive and that they would sabotage the company in a heartbeat. Neither Bruce nor Sam have either the power or stomach to argue with you. They will express their resentment passive-aggressively and become less invested with AFC. My coming to New Jersey once a month will cost AFC $15,840 annually. My absence will cost more. Ike seemed to believe that he and Marty were just one conversation away from solving Marty's complaints. I'm glad that to some degree we've cleared the air. Becky and I were both becoming resentful of being blamed for the messes you've created financially, metaphorically, 
and literally. I know that when we sit down together, we'll be able to work things out. We've been able to for 30 years now. It means too much to all of us not to. I look forward to seeing you again. Until then, you have our gratitude, our best wishes, and will always. Our love, Ike. P.S. You never sent the $5,500 August check, the August party pics, and the two montage boards. Thanks. Marty didn't take the bait. I know I didn't write back after that first letter because he taught me that. You don't get into a pissing match with somebody that you want to break off from. Three decades with Ike had taught Marty a thing or two. And he was finally using it to stand up for himself. After he'd read it, Marty showed Ike's letter to Bruce and Sam. That's when when Marty opened up to, to Bruce and me. He was just incredibly good at keeping it under the radar. Remember, even after almost 30 years, Bruce had no idea that the Isaac Stevens he knew was a fake name for Isaac Hershkoff. I told him that too. I told him that. I said, Marty, you were too good at what you did. I did. I told him, I said, you were too damn good at it. He says, I never had a hint at half the garbage that went on with him and Ike. Sam listened to Marty's story about his last three decades with Ike. This was the same Ike Sam had grown up with. But until now, he'd had no clue about Ike and Marty's true relationship. I was embarrassed that it was Ike. He was an ethical guy who writes letters to the New York Times about how, how people have to be, be good to each other and kind to each other. And here he screwed this guy for, for uh, what is it, 25, 30 years, 20 years. Awful. When you think about what he could have walked away with, had he played his cards right, besides the cash, three pieces of valuable-ass property, enough that you don't have to go back to work anymore. Sam was ready to punch this guy out. Uh, that gave me a, a great sense of satisfaction, truthfully. And it convinced me that I'm doing the right thing. Five months later, Marty was shopping at Costco. His cell phone rang. Marty had never responded to Ike's letter. Earlier that month, he'd sent back clothing the Hirschkoffs had left in the Hamptons. Becky had followed up with a list of additional items she wanted back, including Ike's unpublished books. Marty had ignored her. And I answer my cell phone, and it's Becky on the phone. And in a very friendly way, uh, oh, you know, my daughters would like the books. She asked specifically for the books. To Marty, that sounded like a bold-faced lie. He knew the person who really wanted those books was Ike. Here's where the anger comes out. (laughs) I had spent, as you can well imagine, I typed not only the 12 drafts, but the redrafts and the redrafts and the redrafts and the corrections and the redrafts. And now at this point, at the end of the story, at the end of the day, I said, wait a second. No, 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 no. You're not getting this back. This is the one thing you want that I have, and you want it more than anything. Give me my 27 years back, and I'll give you your books back. I mean, that's really the feeling that I had. This was was a bit vindictive, but I felt very comfortable with that. 
Marty cut Becky short. I came up with this following sentence, which I remember word for word. What your husband did to me was evil on an existential basis, and I will not speak to him again in this world. And hung up the phone. What your husband did to me was evil. Ike would later tell me that Marty's refusal to return the things he and Becky had left in the Hamptons amounted to theft. But in the immediate aftermath of Becky's phone call, he took a different tack. He sent Marty one last letter. 2 o'clock a.m., March 27th, 2011. Dear Marty, whether you respond to my letter or not, I need to write it. Becky informed me of her conversation with you. She was so shocked and disturbed by it, she tried to record your words as soon as she was done. According to her notes, you said, what your husband did to me was profoundly evil. Needless to add, I was even more shocked and far more upset. I confess that I haven't stopped thinking about it ever since. I also confess that I am utterly confused. In our last meeting, you suggested that we only meet in the city to reduce the expense. In retrospect, I should have agreed, but I unsuccessfully argued that I instead come to AFC with diminished frequency. When we parted, we exchanged loving sentiments. I have to assume at that time you did not consider me evil. Subsequently, we exchanged letters on the issue, and while we still didn't agree, we both signed them lovingly. In retrospect, my letter was more direct and therefore harsher than was prudent, for which I apologize. But I closed by talking about our three decades of working together and how important it was to both of us. Once again, I failed to convince you, but you were kind enough to enclose a check, though you believed you had already paid me. Again, you would not have been generous if you considered me evil. Marty, it bothers me more than you can imagine that you feel this way. We hitched our wagon together for 30 years and accomplished so much professionally, philanthropically, and personally. I sensed that our relationship was ending, but I never thought it would be in this manner. I have two questions. Both are simple. The first is, how and when did you come to conclude that I was evil? The second is, what did I do to you? Marty ignored Ike's letter. But now, Marty was completely alone. After almost 30 years, after losing his sister, his nieces, his nephew, his friends, he would need to find out who from his old life would take him back. From Bloomberg and Wondery, this is part five of six of The Shrink Next Door, a story about power, control, and turning to the wrong person for help. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com and Bloomberg.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. And you'll also find some offers from our sponsors. 
When you support our sponsors, you help us bring you our shows for free. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com survey. And if you have a story for us to look into, email us at tips at Wondery.com. And thank you. The Shrink Next Door was written and reported by me, Joe Nocera. Senior producer is Krista Ripple. Maya Kaufman and Monica Codero-Sancho contributed reporting. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.